Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. We've got a special guest today, Dr. Hunter Baker, and I'm uh, Dr. Uh, Russ McCullough and serve as the director and uh, uh, co-founder of uh, the Gortney Institute. And Dr. Levi Russell is my uh, right-hand man here on the show as well. And so uh, today it's a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Hunter Baker. He's uh, got a busy guy here with a law degree, a JD, and a PhD. Uh, He serves as Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, a university fellow, and a full professor of political science at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. He's authored three books, uh, The End of Secularism, uh, Political Thought, A Student's Guide, and The System Has a Soul. Oh, that could be good for us here. So we would have known systems have a soul, so that might be good. Um, He's contributed to other books uh, throughout the years and many publications. Um, He's the winner of the 2011 Michael Novak Award, conferred by the Acton Institute. Uh, Has lectured widely on religion and liberty, Uh, In addition to his work as Union, Baker also serves as the Associate Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, something we've talked about on this show a little bit, and a Contributing Editor for Touchstone, a Journal of Mere Christianity. All right, sounds like a little Lewis action in there. And he's also a Research Fellow for the Ethics Religious Liberty Commission. Um, So it's a pleasure to have you on today, Hunter, and uh, the other neat... uh, little known fact, I guess, that I learned at a conference we were at or workshop we were at uh, last week in in Lindenwood was that you were a student of Jim Gordney's. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so here we are on a podcast of the Gortney Institute. Uh, And yeah, I remember being, you know, uh, we both teach uh, in Christian colleges, right? And uh, you have these fairly close relationships with students and People have advisors guiding their steps and things like that. Um, At Florida State, when it was time to take classes, back in those days, they basically gave us a handout with the classes and uh, said, go find a telephone, uh, (laughs) register for some courses. Um, Zero guidance, zero advising. I I, I think I supposedly had an advisor, but I never saw this person. And um and I remember, I, you know, I had been at Florida State for about a year, and I suddenly thought, you know, I need to, I need to figure out a major, and uh, I need to pick something that maybe my parents will tolerate. Uh, maybe it sounds enough like a professional major that they will accept it. <laughs> and then I thought, maybe I'll take this economics class. And, uh, and I took James Gortney's massive, you know, probably a massive micro or macro survey yeah 200 uh, plus people maybe exactly. in Florida state even more i suppose exactly and uh and he was a great professor he was the kind of guy who could carry a room with 200 people in it no problem mm-hmm. uh and i was just totally won over uh to the subject of economics uh by his class and uh shortly after that i immediately declared a major in economics and um and had the the great experience of uh, majoring in economics at Florida State University at that time, which was a very 
uh, pro free market. What uh, year would you have had uh, Jim in class? Uh, probably 1989. 89. Okay, so he still yeah. had his site then, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So okay, uh, yeah, he still had his. I sight. mean, his story is even more amazing when he can hold the room of you know 400 to 500 with with no sight and do yeah, PowerPoints absolutely. at the same time. It always amazes me. Well, and when I heard when I heard your podcast with him, you were talking about this uh, index of economic freedom. Right around the world, right? And yes. I think you identified Robert Lawson yes. as the person who worked with him on that. Well, in my day, Robert Lawson was a TA. I think he was a TA. He was your TA for that class. He probably graded your <laughs> test. <laughs> Back in those days. And it's and another thing that's funny about this is that you and I were together at this event at Lindenwood University. And um, that Friday night, we had the opportunity to see Walter Williams. Right. Uh, if you recall, and I remember Walter Williams coming to Florida State University and T.A. Robert Lawson giving us extra credit to show up and hear Walter <laughs> Williams. Yeah, wow. That is uh, very cool. Very Which cool. was a great event. Yeah, he was a, you know, he was a fantastic, uh, very provocative speaker 30 years ago. Or yeah. So you mentioned um, you uh, not only finding uh, the wisdom and providence of, of economics, but you also found Christ. Uh, tell us a little That's bit right. about that. Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm one of these weird people. I, I don't think many people can probably say this, who went to Florida State University to become a Christian. <laughs> uh, yeah, people might have lost, more people maybe lose their religion. Uh, than, I mean, than really, it, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I moved into the honors dorm there, Landis Hall, you know, right above Landis Green, and um, <clears throat> my dorm, you know, even in like 1988 was just Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was an incredibly lost place, you know, just, uh, and, uh, I, and I, I did not come in as a Christian. I mean, I was a Southerner, right? I guess I was a Christ Christian sort of like a lot of Southerners are in just sort of a nominal fashion, right? Okay. Uh, but so I you were raised, I, you were raised Christian or at least Christmas uh, and Easter? Were you a priester? Just an awareness, right? More I of mean, a cultural, very, cultural thing. Very, yeah. absolutely. And um, so, you know, I can remember when I was a kid, they used to always show things like Jesus of Nazareth on network television at Easter, you know, <laughs> like that. And I would watch, I would catch some of that on TV. And they would start nailing him to the cross. I'm like, why are they doing that? What, <laughs> what in the world? You know, I didn't understand it at all. It didn't make any sense to me. And, um, and so, you know, so I went to Florida State. I was, I was very naive with regard to the Christian faith. Uh, you know, I had been to some lock-ins and things like that. And, you know, maybe you see a taped testimony from one of the Atlanta Braves <laughs> about his faith, but you know, that was just sort of the ticket you paid to enjoy the lock-in, right? Uh, and so I really didn't understand the Christian faith. Uh, when I was at Florida State, I didn't know that Jim Gortney was a Christian. Um, it's probably not the kind of thing that he was telling his 200 Yeah, I was at Iowa State and the same thing. It's just not <laughs> something you uh, weave into lecture, so. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so, so my dorm was this crazy place, and I, I immediately fell into all the stuff that was going on there. And um, I can just tell you that after one of those nights, I had 
I had drunk something like 14 vodkas or something, <laughs> you know, just a terrible, terrible lost night. And uh, the next day I probably was in danger of alcohol poisoning or something like that. And the next day I just spent the whole day crawling around on our communal men's room floor. <laughs> you can imagine that place on the weekend. Oh. That, that, that is not a place you want to be crawling around on the floor, right? Yeah, not exactly daily maid service. No, and that is exactly right. And, you know, I just had one of those kind of transactional prayers, right? You know, uh, <laughs> God, if I survive this weekend, then I will go to a religious service of some kind. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, went to, um, I went to a meeting of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I think it was that Tuesday night in the student union. Um, and I just sat in the back and listened and it was not cool and it was not hip. And they had like an overhead projector and, you know, somebody playing like a cheesy keyboard uh, and, <laughs> and singing the songs. And, uh, and I just totally sat there and observed, you know, like I was, uh, Oh, who's the, who's the fe Jane Goodall observing the apes or something. <laughs> uh, <Right>. And, <laughs> And they asked me to move forward in my seat. And I said, no, I'm just, I'm just kind of here. I'm just here. And, um, but the crazy thing is I kept coming back. Uh, and I think that what it was, was that I found these people admirable in a way that I had not really seen before. Uh, I think I just sort of saw the character and the faith of these Christian people. And they, they talked about Jesus Christ, like he was a real person. And, uh, strangely, I was just attracted to it. I tell people I was like Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves. You know, he, <laughs> he's watching the Indians and he likes the Indians. And that's how I felt about the Christians. And, um, you know, and eventually it came to, I started to read, you know, uh, people encouraged me to read. And I read uh, particularly Between Heaven and Hell by Peter Kreeft. And that book convinced me that Jesus Christ actually did rise from the dead. Mm. Uh, and I think that's when I began to have an actual faith instead of just sort of emulating Christians. So you hit some apologetic stuff. That's right. That, yeah. That twisted yeah. your arm. Okay. Yeah. Very much kind of in the, in the voice of CS Lewis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So did you have a, Oh, how should I say, uh, some sort of big aha moment or epiphany, or did it just kind of do you just slowly like, yeah, this is this is right, this is the thing. Um, uh, I think it, to me it was almost like a romance, right? I mean, it's just sort of like a, a a developing relationship over time. And then when I was reading that book and I thought to myself, Jesus Christ actually did rise from the dead, then I was like, whoa, I actually believe this. You know, this is this is my faith now. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, college for me was a really powerful time intellectually and spiritually. I think that's why I'm a college professor is that uh, it was so fruitful for me that I wanted to participate in that in other people's lives. And, you know, just as, so just as I'm talking about my faith and kind of waking up to my faith in college, um, I always tell people, and that's not the same level, right? We're not going to, we're not going to say Christianity and economics are the same level, but um but when I started learning economics, that was also a kind of an awakening. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it helped me to understand human behavior yeah. so much better than I had before. Um, and I always, I always told uh, people that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to learn economics is because I wanted to figure out how the world works. It's true. Right? It's and true. That, that's really all, you know, sometimes you think 
these external versus internal influences. And so, yeah, economics really helps to enlighten you on that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're right now kind of going through looking at our core curriculum here at Union University. And uh, one of the things that I keep saying is all the students should take economics. Economics should be a required course for every student because I yeah. think I think every college student would be better off. In fact, I think every high school student would be better off if they would take economics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's slowly been starting to work in in different. I can't remember how many states, but I think at least twenty states now require some form of economics. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not there. And then now uh, some states are starting to incorporate personal finance, which is fine. But I I do kind of I've thought I hope they don't take those as substitutes like well right. as long as we're doing personal finance we don't have to do economics because they they are really different from each other both important i i would uh, be up for requiring both but and actually jim's book common sense economics if i can put a shameless plug in and maybe we can add this to the show notes but uh that has a really nice blending uh for high school level and college level for that matter of economics he hits economics in the uh, pretty much the first three quarters of the book and then it's a, kind of a whole personal finance section at the end as well. And so that's a really nice blending of that. So, yeah, I picked that book up recently. I need to read it, but I'm sure, you know, his, his voice was so accessible uh, in college. I'm sure the book is the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, uh, what do you think's wrong with the United States? Wow. Wow. There are so many things. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so I'm, I'm, I really believe that our biggest problem right now, okay, uh, if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said it's, it's our demographic problem or, or something like that, and that's still a very big problem. Uh, but the thing that's worrying me the most right now is the deterioration of our political culture. Um, because, because I think that we do have significant problems. I think, I think a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other nations around the world do too, but I think that our capacity for working together uh, and finding constructive solutions to our problems is diminishing. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that I think that you know there's a certain amount of social capital you have in a society, kind of from your customs and traditions and, and your founding and uh, spiritual spiritual foundations as well, and. Uh, I feel like a lot of that is eroding quickly and we're just kind of sending into this sort of uh, unproductive tribalistic uh, negative discourse. Yeah. So what, which of your books do you think addresses culture the most in terms of what you've written or what, what do you think was your best contribution to that, to those sorts of issues? Uh, well, okay. Uh, in terms of, in terms of accessibility, my wife likes uh, a short book I wrote called Political Thought, A Student's Guide. Uh, the reason I mentioned my wife is that she is, she's a science person. Uh, she's a physician. And so reading books about politics is not really her thing. But she read that one, and uh, she said something I really appreciated. She said, she said now when I watch the evening news, I can relate it to political ideas. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what I tried to do. I tried to, I tried to take some of these big ideas like freedom, order, and justice. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and to, to, to help people to weave that into the way they think about politics. 
So that one is good in that sense. I think it's good for kind of helping you scrape off the barnacles uh, of, of kind of modern American politics and think through things at a more essential level. Yeah, certainly uh, the civility is something that we're missing. That's for sure. Well, so I, I had a question related to that. So um, I, I, I read with really great interest um, Patrick Deneen's book, um, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. And I think it, it, there's some themes in there that play into what you were just saying about um, you know, discourse breaking down and, and unproductive tribalism and stuff like that. And I, I don't know um, exactly what he would say about uh, that commentary, but I, but I wonder if um, you know, there, there is sort of a, a narrative that says that, you know, this, <clears throat> this whole idea of, uh, you know, a very productive conversational kind of thing and very individualistic and um, not, not tribal in, in, in a sense, um, it's kind of been a special thing that has happened for a short period of time and that it's not especially natural. Is there, well, how would you respond to that, um, that line of thinking? I think it's a, I think it's a good question. I sometimes wonder about that myself. Um, I, I sometimes wonder, so for instance, uh, all of us on this podcast, um, as I just look at you guys, I can tell, I think we probably are roughly contemporaries. Um, the, we grew up in the period where um, a lot of the cities had stopped having Republican and Democrat newspapers. Uh, there was a lot of media consolidation. So, you know, each city generally was moving to having one dominant newspaper. Uh, the, um, you only had the, really the three major news networks uh, on television during at least my childhood. Uh, there was, uh, you, when the broadcasting audience is so broad, you have to kind of keep it roughly down the middle. I mean, yes, there's a little bit of a left of center bias, but still kind of generally down the middle. Uh, <clears throat> and, but if we looked, if we looked before that, it's true. Every city would have had a Democrat and Republican paper. Uh, and you would have seen, you know, if we go back further before that, um, you would probably see a ton of active pamphleteering that was highly partisan. Uh, you know, the, the election of 1800 was supposedly a pretty rough affair. Um, and maybe, and maybe our politics was civilized somewhat through the, uh, uniting effect of World War II, uh, sort of some unity that we achieved through the Cold War. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe I'm longing for a golden age that was just a fairly shortened duration. That's entirely possible, but it seems to me that the internet and social media is making things a lot worse because... I can get my news and commentary exactly the way I want it, right? Yeah. I can get it. I can get it. We love you. The you can build an echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. I can get exactly what I want to hear. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can really fine tune it down to exactly what I want. Just confirmation bias out the wazoo. Right. And that doesn't do anything good for my ability to participate in politics. Well, this looks like a good spot to maybe break. Um, we'll come back, and I, I'm going to challenge you with, uh, does, does the press, since you brought up the news media, does the press play a different role than it had in the past in terms of keeping the government in check? So we'll leave it as a cliffhanger there, and we'll be back in 30 seconds.
The Gortney Institute's vision. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Welcome back. We have uh, Dr. Hunter Baker still, and uh, I pressed you with a question of the press keeping the government in check. Do they do it? Do they not? Are they in bed with him? <laughs> the, the fourth estate, uh, well, right? Well, we know they're not in bed with Trump. That's, they that's clearly, sure. the, press, <laughs> the press is clearly not in bed with the Trump administration. Yeah, even, even as we record this, we're going to find out some very fascinating things about this whole Ukraine controversy, yeah. uh, aren't we? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, we'll find out if Donald Trump really is playing 3D chess or not. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, th no, I think that the uh, I think that all of the empirical work out there is pretty clear uh, that the media is is highly biased in one direction politically. And I'm I'm confident that that affects their uh, decisions about what's newsworthy, about how they report it. Um, you know, I find the news exhausting because to me, the news has become something to tell me how I should, how I should feel emotionally about a story mm -hmm. yeah. uh, instead of really just giving me the information, right? It's, it's much less reporting right. than it is kind of a, you know, this is outrageous. Don't you think so? Kind of a, yeah. kind of an approach. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. And they're trying to get by in that way. And <laughs> I guess the reason I posed the question is that it, <clears throat> at least I've heard other scholars or maybe uh, just people opining that uh, in the old days, the press was the double check in a sense on the government so that we didn't have as much of behind the scenes stuff or when it did, hopefully it eventually erupted, whether it was Watergate or whether it was whatever, that there was these, you know, somewhat unbiased journalists, although I've heard people challenge that, but you know, that are always groping around trying to see, like, is the government actually doing what they say they are? And so that they were really more of a double check that would bring that news to the media and hopefully help uh, something blow up. Whereas today, if they're more advocates of one side or the other, we're not getting that same double check any longer. Yeah. The, the other thing is, I think that um, I think that news is increasingly becoming entertainment yeah uh you know that it's uh that basically uh, look i mean I, I tell students all the time 
uh, I can remember I used to go to this gym in Houston when I lived there. And, you know, you, you couldn't control which treadmill you'd get and which TV was facing your treadmill, right? <laughs> and, uh, and some days I would get the treadmill in front of a guy named Ed Schultz on MSNBC. <laughs> and Ed Schultz's show was the same every single night. Uh, he would talk about basically there are these demons who are breaking through the crust of the earth. And if we don't repress the demons that are breaking through the crust of the earth, they will eventually break through and kill us all. And the demons are the Republicans, right? <laughs> and that was, that was the show every night, okay? That was it. And, you know, if you, if you like that, you're feeling good, right? But it made me feel hot and bothered and troubled, you know? Because right. uh, I disagreed with it. And people, you know, we're consuming news on that basis these days. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about your acting institute uh, work and what you're doing for them. Sure. Um, yeah, this is a and, and start I, by start by uh, letting our listeners know what the Acton Institute is. A, just a, a brief background of it because they they don't necessarily know that the Acton Institute is a very weird think tank. Uh, it is a it is a think tank made up of hardcore Catholics, hardcore Reformed people. Uh, Greek Orthodox people, you know, it's just the, the strangest assemblage of different Christians yeah. uh, that you've ever seen. And, um, but they tend to be united by their preference for liberty mm-hmm. uh, and, and particularly with a, a strong desire for economic liberty. <clears throat> right. And <clears throat> I think that, I think that a lot of the sensibility of it is informed by the experience of the Cold War, right? You know, the, the, the Cold War period, um, the sort of the, uh, really the, the high point for totalitarianism, the, the 20th century uh, showed people that, uh, that religious liberty is uh, suppressed uh, in an extreme fashion by mm. those sorts of governments. Um, yeah. And that maybe that goes hand in hand with the economic control, right? right? Uh, you know, kind of a kind of a, a point like like Friedman or Hayek might make that if the government is controlling the economics, then it's going to control everything else mm-hmm. as well, right? And so maybe we need to have a presumption in favor of liberty. Uh, you know, that th- that should be our starting point, right? Yeah. Uh, sort of this kind of classical liberalism, um, and then you know, let the faith flourish. We're having all these debates now about about whether we need to abandon classical liberalism and, and go for more of a, you know, for lack of a better word, more of a theocratic sort of an approach. Uh, I'd be very comfortable with just classical liberalism. And then let's just trust that we can, that we can get our ideas out there. Right. I mean, just let people hear what we have to say and let's just go from there. Yeah. Yep. I, I am definitely in that camp too. And, uh, well, I, I have a question on that. Um, sure. So, you know, we have here in Kansas, we're very close to Missouri, obviously. We have Josh Hawley, who um, beat Claire McCaskill for a Senate seat, uh, for a U.S. Senate seat. And he's been very vocal and, and been putting together some legislation sort of against the, um, you know, I guess the Silicon Valley trusts or however you would, uh, you know, put them out there. And he seems to be sort of have this idea that, you know, like you're saying, this whole fusion is the Cold War fusionism um, between, you know, sort of the Republicans and, and the libertarian type uh, philosophy just, you know, is, it's not working out and we keep losing, you know, and, you know, we try to put our ideas out there, but the people who are 
willing to use power in the short term to get their way are just consistently winning in the short run. And yeah. so you, it's like, well, yeah, you can just put your ideas out there, but if the, 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 if the other side, right, the, the left wing or the Democrats or whoever you want to say, you know, they're not, they're not concerned about, you know, how they're going to be perceived if they use political power. They just do it. That's right. Yeah, I, you know, when I talk to my students, I refer to this as the tyranny of the obvious, right? I mean, basically, any problem uh, that we have, there is sort of this short, blunt force answer that is, let's use the power of the government to solve it. Yeah. Uh, and to me, uh, that's what's going on with uh, social media, right? You know, and, and frankly, uh, I can't remember if it's William Balmall uh, who says something like that. Uh, the amount of entrepreneurship in a society is basically constant, but whether it's economic entrepreneurship or political entrepreneurship is another. Yeah. Problem, yeah. Right. And uh, you know, as I look at, at Hawley and, and a number of other figures, uh, politicians, when it comes to social media, I wonder if what I'm seeing is kind of a, some political entrepreneurship going on, right? You know, are there, are there ways, uh, are, we, are we threatening regulation as a way to develop sources of funding, uh, you know, campaign donations, uh, lobbyists, things like that? Um, and with regard to the social media companies, I think that they will resist it up to the point that they think they can own it, right? That's, the, that's sort of the typical cycle. Uh, the, the up and coming businesses, they resist regulation, they resist it. Then they figure out they can own it and keep out new competitors and then they embrace it. Uh, and yeah, you know, it, to me, when I look at social media, I feel like we're moving in that kind of a direction. Yeah. And I, I, we talked about free market forum and last year I, I asked, there was a, there was a panel on social media and uh, they had James Pethacugas there to kind of, you know, defend the sort of status quo, um, you know, as far as policy goes for social media and tech companies and stuff like that, which was, you know, relatively free market compared to what Luigi's and Gali's and um, I think Frank Pasquale, uh, who was there as well. And I, and I asked James, I was like, look, you know, people try to compete in this space in the current policy regime and they can't, they just get, they get screamed and shouted down. And it's, and so, you know, like YouTube, you know, they get a tiny fraction of their revenue from, you know, political commentary that can swing elections. Yeah. You know, most of their stuff, most of their revenue comes from a complete other source, you know, in terms of YouTube. And so there is no, it doesn't seem to be a case where there's this market mechanism that, you know, checks their ability to influence the political world just completely independent of any kind of buying of lobbyists or buying of politicians. I mean, they just, they just change the discourse because they own the public space. I, well, but, but I don't blame them. I actually think that, the, that a lot of elite social pressure has been brought to bear on them. If you look at YouTube and Facebook and, and Twitter, I think that they all originally had the idea. This is a platform uh, people can do whatever they want on the platform, right? I mean, you know, there's some very broad parameters. We're not going to show people shooting people or something like that. But basically speaking, it's a very broad platform for ideas, and we're comfortable for the, with that. And uh, what, what has happened, I think in particular, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, uh, two instances where elites perceive that social media enabled an outcome that they did not want and did not foresee, 
and therefore there is this powerful need to regulate, right? And so they are basically forcing companies like Facebook to demonstrate all this concern for the way their platforms are being misused. Uh, and now they're starting to kind of use these heavy handed tactics of demonetizing people or blocking people, you know. Uh, but it seems like Holly is trying to fight against that. Like that. The, the, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. You, yeah. You think, you think he's trying to prevent them from this uh, discretionary blocking. Right. right. Demonetizing. Yeah, and that, and that could be. So maybe maybe he's on the side of the angels that way. Uh, if if what he wants is uh, a very open platform uh, in which we do not treat Facebook or Google as though they are publishing newspapers or something like that, I think that would be. I think that would be for the good. Yeah, and that's that's something Levi you mentioned before. It's an ongoing fight of whether you're a platform or whether you're a provider of content. Right, and, and the I mean, more discretionary, yeah. Well, this doesn't quite fit my worldview, and slash it or whatever. Yeah, then you're ever, a content provider if you're not allowing. Yeah, freedom ever of speech. since ever since they started, they have had the privilege of being a platform while also having the censorship ability of a publisher, and it's like, well, you either have to have one or the other. If you have both then we, we've got a set of problems that I think Holly and some others are, yeah, you know, have pretty their much got about. world domination if you've got both. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't be touched. And so, you know, I maybe, maybe, you, you know, Holly control. is just a, you know, is just grubbing for money and, and stuff like this, but uh, you know, it just seems like a, it just seems like a really weird case of all these principles. And if you're, and I think if you're really committed to economics as sort of a new physics where, you know, the, where they have these universals and we have to apply them the same way, um, I think that leads you to a different set of conclusions than if you're looking at it more as an empirical, you know, well, sometimes things are just weird uh, perspective, but anyway. Well, and then it, I guess this is kind of tying into cronyism, uh, but, you know, Mark Zuckerberg um, on his knees crying to Congress and saying that we're going to lead the charge for regulating and making privacy a mm -hmm. top priority, blah, blah, blah. All of that is just a classic example of playing kissy face with government and erecting barriers for smaller competitors or other platforms so that we do have a monopolized control uh, for the most part or a super large market share uh, that gives them right. grants these powers. Yeah, and you know, I just want to say, so I think that I think that Levi's point about Josh Hawley is a good one. Uh, and maybe maybe I'm misinterpreting him as a as a uh, would-be political entrepreneur when maybe he's a free speech uh, protector. That would be good. Um, the, with regard to this question of uh, whether they're going to control who has access, I think that's highly problematic, right? I mean, because, and, and it will be because we have encouraged them in that direction. That was not their initial starting point, right? And when people when people cry about, you know, their privacy or their data, I'm confused by that because to me, okay, here is this totally free platform that provides a ton of value, right? You know, for you to keep in touch with your friends, to share your photos, to document your experiences, to communicate with people, uh, whatever. Um, did we think that they were going to do that for absolutely nothing that they derived no benefit for this? You know that, I mean, uh, it's it's sort of like watching TV. I understand that watching network TV entails me watching commercials, right? You know, and I can leave the room, whatever. But the commercials are part of the deal, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I don't understand why we act as though some terrible crime has been committed. Well, uh, I think I think I think there's two two pieces of pushback to that. So one was last year Zingales had some interesting things to say about the specifics of the property rights that were there. And so very early on, a set of decisions were made that allowed the social media companies to, um, you know, essentially get a hold of, of certain types of data um, independent of you owning them. So like, do you own your files? Do you own the images there? Or does Facebook own them? And, and so there was a set of decisions made about the property rights themselves that went in favor of the social media companies and not in favor of the average user. Because of course, if you're a user, you're, you're the product. You're not the, you're not the consumer of that product, right? It's the, it's the advertisers that, um, you know, and so, and so, I mean, I think it's a classic case of, you know, maybe a coast or something like that saying, you know, we bundled this private good advertising space with a public good. And it just happened to be the case that this public good ended up being the public square as well. And so it's, it's, you know, I think to an extent, it's hard to, it's hard to blame people for, you know, wanting to have their own ownership and privacy while at the same time, um, you know, because this is the public square, this is the idea of, you know, um, the forum or whatever, right. Where, where people are, should be allowed to speak. Right. And so I, I mean, that's all political stuff. I don't know. And you're the, you're the political scientist. So I, I love to hear your reaction to that. No, all your points are reasonable, but to me, to me, it just seems like we're begging for paternalism uh, Mm -hmm. space. I think that you go into using something like social media with your eyes wide open uh, and that you don't, uh, that you don't kind of just constantly demand, uh, you know, all these, all these little protections. Uh, it seems to me that if you use it and then you realize, oh my gosh, they're tracking me. And now those rock ports that I looked at are showing up, showing up on every website that I visit. Uh, that's part of the process. And we all have the right to, to, uh, to disconnect from social media, right? Nobody is forced to use it. Uh, it just seems to me that we're that we're asking for a little bit of kind of a nanny state intervention uh, yeah. on social media, and I just I prefer it as free and open as it can be. Yeah, I and I from the paternalistic side, I I, I just I wonder how much the public's been lulled to sleep, or are we that big of freedom fighters and have that much faith in the U.S. government that? we know they would never take away our freedoms because our country was built on freedom. So I'm willingly going to give over all of my data to a private company, knowing that the good old US of A and the constitution will always, <laughs> will always be, will always have my back. And, or are, have we just been lulled to sleep slowly over time? Well, this, not this, to mention too that, you know, Facebook has trackers all over the internet too. So I mean, even if you don't have an account, you know, they have their tracking software built into these, you know, and you have to kind of get special apps on your browser and all that stuff to, to block all that tracking as yeah, well. So, yeah. well, you know, it's, it's, so this is, this is kind of an endless discussion because the, you will never <laughs> stop unpeeling this onion. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, just as you say all this, I'm thinking about, okay, so my streaming habits, uh, everything that I'm streaming on Netflix, Amazon prime, Hulu, Etc. right? Well, somebody's tracking that. Sure. Somebody yeah. knows what I watched. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that, is that I accept that. There, there's something that would, that frustrates me about me using services like that and then being like, and nobody should be keeping track of what I watched and nobody should be using that to market to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess where I was arguing is that I think 
we we have been lulled to sleep forgetting about the fall of the roman empire the fall of the mayans the fall of whatever every civilization from you know here to backwards eternity has run into problems and we see what communist china is doing and we have this belief that oh our government would never do that or i'll never be put in that position and similar to what how uh, oppressive regimes don't care if you're running a little uh, a little shop selling convenience store items on a six by six platform and they they're going to give you the freedom to do that they don't they're going to let the little people do their thing and have these perception of true freedom in, yeah. is what i'm getting at that as long as they have that we have the 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 general public the the majority thinking we're okay freely giving up this stuff and so i'm not sure how uh, the Acton Institute, the Gortney Institute, and some of these other places really start to have people have a different appreciation for what freedom means and the protections that we need. Um, and I think Levi hitting kind of one of these core issues, I don't think most people know that at all about the platform versus the, um, you know, being a publisher. And so those are some really fundamental core things that, you know, can we become Venezuela? I'm not so sure we can't eventually. I, I, I got to say one of the big things with the Trump administration for me is that the, the change of the, of the courts, having the Supreme Court kind of locked down for a longer period of time was huge. I mean, I can't imagine if, if Hillary was in and we had the system sliding towards this discretionary system rather than the strong rule of law, for the most part, that's been eroding slowly, but that we've enjoyed over time. Well, you're getting, you're, to me, you're getting at a very Hayekian point, okay? I mean, uh, one of the things that Hayek talks about is, look at the complexity of our laws, right? Uh, if, you, if you were to go back and look at some fairly substantial pieces of legislation from decades ago, they would not be that long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, could, you could sit down and read them and fully understand them, okay? Right, right. Uh, whereas, you know, you look at the laws now and they're, you know, thousand pages, uh, dense, uh, dense language, not really readable and, um, and mostly administered through, uh, kind of a very heavy regime of administrative yeah, law. Yeah. The one we bring up is the free trade agreement. That's 3000 yeah, pages. Exactly. Long. <laughs> so, 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 and, and what Hayek would say about that is, is that, is that when you have sort of this regime of administrative law that is run by experts, you know, technocratic experts, you've sort of given up self-government, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, so to me, part of what's going on with something like Brexit, and I'm, I'm not trying to endorse Brexit as good, bad, or indifferent, but part of what's going on is people realize, oh my gosh, we're not really governing ourselves anymore, mm -hmm. right? We have we have turned over the government, sort of this administrative law elite, and we want some of it back. Yeah. Right? And in that case, they turned it over to other countries, other foreigners, to some yeah, to, totally. a, to a certain extent, totally. right? Yeah. By joining the union. So. And this is kind of, this is a little bit of a C.S. Lewis point as well, right? So I'll give you C.S. Lewis and Hayek. C.S. Lewis in the Abolition of Man, he talks about these, you know, these societal elites who are the conditioners, right? You know, they. They condition people. They, they, they get them to feel what they want them to feel, and they're manipulating them and controlling them. And, and you know, you may even have the illusion that you're in charge. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, everything is kind of a conditioned response. Yeah. Uh, it's that but same concern. I think it's interesting you're talking about, you know, elites and stuff like this, because I know that's 
one point that Tucker Carlson makes a lot is that he's not a populist. He, he, he thinks that, you know, uh, I guess the, I don't know, Hamiltonian kind of notion that, you know, you need good elites or good aristocrats or whatever. But his perspective is that the populism kind of wave that we're going through now, and as a political scientist, you know, I mean, I, I don't even really know what I'm talking about here, but, um, you know, it, he's, he says, you know, that the, the populism with Brexit and Trump and all this stuff seems to be a reaction against elites who overstep too much. Yeah. And it seems like that's kind of consistent with what you're getting at. And, and I think the average Joe can't quite pinpoint it, sure. but it's tacit yeah, yeah, yeah. knowledge that they have, right? They're just like, it's this accumulation of a whole bunch yeah. of stuff over the last 20 years. And Rising suicide rates and tech companies Something's and all this. not right. I think yeah. it's just tacit knowledge. They couldn't even put it into words if they could, but I, I think it's these, is these right. things we're touching on. Well, well, and some of those strange indicators, you just mentioned rising suicide rates. You look at that Angus Deaton research uh, about, you know, this unprecedented rise in mortality among a certain group of middle-aged white people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, that's just a total U-turn. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought that everybody was, was getting wealthier, living longer, having mm -hmm. a better life. And suddenly it's like, whoa. Yeah. These people are actually going backwards. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, it looks like we've solved most of the world's problems here. And uh, <clears throat> across disciplines this time. Yeah, we are with a political very scientist. Interdisciplinary. <laughs> I think, I, I guess Hunter's probably the first political scientist. Yes. We've had on. Yep. Yeah. So this Definitely. has been great. And uh, maybe we can have you on a, again a different time. So yeah. sounds um, good. Appreciate you uh, joining us. And so. Um, on behalf of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, we appreciate you all for listening. And um, if you like what you've been hearing, uh, please subscribe to us. That'll help us rise up on the, on the rankings and the views that people get. And uh, other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.